Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Good morning, good morning, and we are uh, following this really crazy story, and and I say crazy because there's really no other word to describe it, uh, about the toxic plume from the Ohio train derailment, and this has been a story that's been going on since uh, February 3rd, and I think a lot more attention is being paid to it and uh, what happened in Ohio Uh, this Ohio town that is uh, really right on the border of Pennsylvania and the Biden administration's response, as well as uh, the response of the Ohio governor, Mike DeWine, who, of course, is a Republican and, in my opinion, um, is is having uh, just as bad of a response uh, to this as the Biden administration. So a lot of questions are surrounding this. So so what exactly happened? Well, um, so apparently uh, the this Ohio train that was part of the uh, Norfolk Southern train uh, derailed on February 3rd, around 9 p.m. in East Palestine, Ohio, which caused a massive fire. 50 cars were involved in the crash and the fire, the uh, National Transportation Safety Board uh, said later. And 11 of those cars that derailed were carrying hazardous materials, uh, according to the NTSB, some of which uh, did also Um, escape the crash, uh, but burned during the fire. But interestingly, um, now reports are surfacing uh, potentially that some of these cars were not actually labeled with carrying hazardous materials. And other reports are suggesting that the volume of the hazardous materials that were being transported was well over uh, and above the limit of what was um, actually safe and what was okay for this particular uh, transportation. So there are a lot of questions about uh, why this train was carrying all kinds of uh, hazardous materials. And if you go down the list, I mean, I can't even pronounce all of these, all of these chemical uh, compounds and these toxins, um, but all of these uh these are very dangerous, and there are a lot of chemicals uh, that that were being transported that are known to cause cancer, um, to cause a lot of other problems, uh, not only to humans, but also to animal uh, wildlife and uh, other uh, uh, farm animals and, um, you know, and really any living creature that these these chemicals come into contact with. So, um, so, so the questions, of course, remain: what What was going on with this train? Uh, were these these containers labeled appropriately? And if not, why not? Uh, what exactly happened to cause the derailment? Um, apparently, it was, uh, according to uh, the Washington Post, which generally I don't cite as an accurate source of information for just about anything, but. Um, but this, this at least, I think, uh, Washington Post, among other outlets, are also suggesting that the derailment appeared to be caused by a mechanical problem on one rail car. So then that caused then this kind of massive uh, pileup. 
So then, um, then the Biden administration, of course, gets involved, as well as um, the Ohio governor and and their response team, and uh, they decide the Biden administration decides um, to basically just burn all of these chemicals, and they suggest that they were that all of these chemicals together, and because of the fires, uh, there was a potential for a big explosion. So. It appears that the Biden administration just caused the explosion themselves. And this resulted in a giant uh, plume cloud over uh, over eastern Ohio and is now leaking into Pennsylvania. And um, where uh, East Palestine is in, in the state of Ohio, um, the closest major city in Pennsylvania, of course, is Pittsburgh. And so Governor Josh Shapiro, who is a Democrat, um, if you recall, he was just elected uh, this last midterm cycle, and uh, he is is asking a lot of questions, but also uh, kind of backing off now um, his initial response, which was to agree with the Biden administration. And now uh, Senator Doug Mastriano, who uh, ran against Josh Shapiro in the midterms, is now uh, calling uh, yesterday sent a letter to Josh Shapiro asking what is going on, what's uh, being done to protect the air and water supply for uh, Pennsylvania residents and what is known, what's being done. And I just have a lot of questions about all of these um, elected officials um, from Governor DeWine to Governor Shapiro to the Biden administration and where where is Pete Buttigieg? Um, he's he's probably breastfeeding something somewhere, right? I mean, Pete Buttigieg, who was gone for like three months on maternity leave and no one even uh, noticed because he doesn't seem to really be doing anything at his job other than being a diversity hire in the Department of uh, Transportation and being you know, the Secretary of, of Transportation. And what is he doing? Well, really nothing. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the uh, Biden administration officials are not saying much, and reporters that are asking questions on all sides, um, and, and I have to give credit to some of the, the fake news reporters in this instance, there are reporters genuinely asking questions about what's going on here, because now livestock animals are dying. Um, there are thousands of, of fish uh, in in streams um, and the water supply that are now just floating to the surface dead. Um, people are reporting, um, and this is really tragic. I mean, there are reports from the ground, um, from ground zero in Ohio, people who were being told yet safe after two days to come back. Um, totally fine. And they're reporting um, difficulty breathing, um, burning sensations in their lungs. I mean, you know, the, these types of chemicals um, now have been, you know, basically uh, vaporized into the air and um, and other experts are suggesting, um, you know, if your water supply has been contaminated, don't boil your water because that's simply going to vaporize these toxins into the air. So we have our own kind of little Chernobyl situation going on in eastern Ohio and not a lot of, of people seem to be, uh, at least in the in the federal government and even the state level for statewide office, really seem to be that concerned. And for the residents of Ohio, 
And now uh, Pennsylvania, and of course, you know, this, this massive cloud doesn't just have boundaries and doesn't just stop. I mean, how far is this going to, uh, to extend over Ohio and Pennsylvania and possibly further? And has the water uh, been contaminated? And, uh, you know, what, what will ultimately be the fallout for this? And, um, and so, you know, Governor DeWine here, uh, in my opinion, I mean, we, we can always look at the Biden administration and almost count on the one consistent factor of the Biden administration to be utterly incompetent. And if there is a bad decision, they will gravitate toward that decision. If there's an even worse decision, the Biden administration will go toward toward that decision. So, I mean, I kind of expect the Biden administration to have nefarious motives, um, be incompetent, have all of these uh, diversity hires that have no idea what they're doing. But I kind of expect a little bit more from Republicans. I really do. And and Mike DeWine is a great example in this instance, I think, of a Republican that is kind of in the old, um, you know, establishment mold. I mean, I'm not calling him an establishment rhino, but he's kind of in this old establishment uh, sort of mode that he's not really doing much. And we used to expect that from Republicans. Um, I think before President Trump and before the rise of uh, the MAGA movement and this call back to uh, fundamental principles of, of governance and saying, you know, we actually expect that our government will do its job and do what it's supposed to and protect the rights of the American people and um, and actually have uh, progress being made toward protecting our rights, which protections you generally think of in a defensive posture, but you can actively protect. And, you know, we used to kind of just sit back and, and sort of expect these really, you know, lazy kind of Republicans that, you know, are meh. I, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't really think this is a big deal. Like, you know, who cares if there's a massive um, fire plume of toxins, you know, that's being vaporized over Eastern Ohio. It's just, it's just really, really not that big of a deal. And, and that's, that's really what Governor Mike DeWine is suggesting. And so he was asked uh, by a reporter at a press conference, um, Literally just, I think this was yesterday. This could have been a day or two ago. Um, this particular clip wasn't, uh, was not timestamped that I could see. But um, but this was literally, you know, in the context of the last two weeks. It'll be two weeks tomorrow that this train derailed. And listen to this reporter's question and then how Governor DeWine responds when he says that Joe Biden had called him and said, I will offer you all the help that you need, whatever you need, you know, I'll give it to you. Listen to his response. This is cut seven. Senator Vance is on Fox News, critical of the Biden administration. Even some Democrats have been critical of the Biden administration response. Are you satisfied with the Biden administration response? And is there anything you'd like to see more out of uh, the administration as far as health like this? Look, um, our Ohio EPA works with the U.S. EPA. Uh, these are the principal people involved. Um, the federal government is conducting an investigation to determine why uh, this wreck occurred, this crash occurred. We await that. Uh, and certainly we'll be interested in seeing what 
what is going on. Uh, you know, look, the president called me and said, anything you need, uh, I have not called him back uh, after that after that conversation. We, I will not hesitate to do that if, we, if we're seeing a problem or, or anything, but I'm not seeing it. So, so that was Governor Mike DeWine. I'm not seeing a problem. There's this massive cloud of toxins over a a city in my state that's now uh, going over and um and and invading the airspace of a sister state. But we're not that concerned about it. We we await the results of the investigation. We're just sitting here, you know. I'm I'm drinking my tea, eating my cookies, and I'm I'm just waiting on these reports. As if you have time. I mean, the so so Joe Biden according to Governor DeWine, is actually asking him, you know, what do you need? I'll, I'll send all of this stuff. This is a Republican that that is actually being offered help by a Democrat, which frankly doesn't happen all that often. And DeWine's like, I haven't called him back. Eh, I'll, I'll, I'll do that if I if I need to. I'm not we're not really seeing a problem here. There's no problem. I, I mean, th- this is insane to me that a Republican who is the governor of this state, is not raising all kinds of, of red flags and all kinds of, of um, just waving his hands up and down and saying and asking the, for the entire nation to call attention to this. I mean, why hasn't there been a state of emergency declared? I mean, that's, to me, a really fascinating question because if you look at how quick the Biden administration was to call a state of emergency over um, or continue that over the COVID narrative and all of these different governors. Um, Why isn't Josh Shapiro as a Democrat trying to exercise emergency powers um, very quickly, which in this instance may be justified in just this one area, right? Because that's the whole point of emergency powers uh, is to address a problem like disasters like this, whether they're natural disasters or they're caused by accidents, but addressing disasters when the legislature uh, can't step in and you know, the legislature can can maybe try to prevent this later. That's the point of legislation. But you need to go and actually act. So Governor Mike DeWine, what are you doing? Why do you not have national attention on this? Why are reporters asking questions and just sitting back and saying, Meh, we're going to wait and see? Well, we need to not just wait and see. We need to hold our officials accountable. And, you know, for people in Ohio, um, we are praying for you. I think we need to really seriously see what's going on here and uh, what just all of this with this story. But uh, we'll be right back with more on Jenna Ellis in the morning to talk about some other really important stories this morning. Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan you're happy with, you can call 
right now and get a price within two minutes. A very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. This is Pause to Pray. A chance each day to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Roy Cooper, governor of North Carolina. He is the state's 75th governor and was previously the state's attorney general. Matthew 23:11 reminds us of the qualities of a good leader. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask for guidance for Governor Roy Cooper as he leads the people of North Carolina each day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Stern. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. I got a nasty email the other day accusing me of playing politics with the shooting of a Memphis police officer. The gunman fired a bullet into the officer's head at a public library, that officer in critical condition. Turns out the 28-year-old attacker had been arrested at least 39 times since the age of 19. And two months before the attack, the suspect had been arrested by Memphis police. So why was this guy back out on the street? The Michigan State killer, he should have been in jail too, charged with a felony gun violation in 2019. That's a five-year sentence in Michigan. The problem is not guns. It's progressive Democrats and soft-on-crime district attorneys. The truth is that Memphis police officer would still be patrolling the streets today, and those three Michigan State University kids would be in class if their attackers had just been behind bars where they were supposed to be. America does not have a gun problem. We have a coddling criminals problem. I'm Todd Starnes. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Well, I was uh, talking to Adam and Devin in the, in the break, um, my really great team here at AFR, and uh, Devin made a comment that I, I think is hilarious, and I'm probably going to tweet this later, that uh, we now when we want to say we're in Joe Biden's America, we should just all be saying we're in DeWine's Ohio. So <laughs> I, I just thought that was great. And, you know, credit where credit is due. I don't know, Devin, if you wanted that credit, but hey, you got it, because I think it was hilarious. But uh, we need to um, we need to take stories like this and events like this very seriously. And um, and for, for Governor DeWine, I just, I, I don't know where his headspace is at and what he is doing, um, but it, it's going to be really, really important for um, not only the people of the state of Ohio, but also Pennsylvania and literally the rest of the nation uh, looking at the response. And this is just one of those instances where declaring an emergency is actually proper in this instance and and so everything just seems to be backwards in the way that these type of DeWine like Republicans and of course the Democrats like uh, Josh Shapiro 
and and even Joe Biden um, don't actually use the emergency powers to help the American people like the legislature intended. But when the legislature didn't intend that and it's just to advance their own political partisan purposes, then they harness those powers in a way that wasn't intended. And it's just and it's all backwards. And this is why it's so frustrating uh, to see these types of actions from the people that are supposed to be elected to office to protect and preserve our inalienable rights and our um, and our way of life. And they just don't care. They're they're totally outcome driven. But um, but speaking of protecting our rights, um, we need to talk about yet another uh, pro-life uh scenario here and uh, another uh, pro-life advocate um, who, of course, is you know Josh Hawley, um, who is a senator from uh, the great state of Missouri. And um, so Josh Hawley uh, tweeted back on Tuesday that he said, today I'm introducing legislation to set an age requirement of 16 to open a social media account, protect kids online. All right, great. Um, so, so you know that's um, that's potentially legislation. Well, Representative Eric Swalwell, you know the the great legislator that he is, uh, quote tweets this, and this is why I love Twitter because you get these kinds of exchanges that you know these kind of off the cuff things that you really don't in any other context. And uh, Swalwell tweets, quote, "Same dude is totally cool with a thirteen year old having a government mandated pregnancy." Uh, let's sit there and think about this for a second. Um, a government mandated pregnancy. When has the government ever mandated that someone, that any woman, not someone, right? We need to be clear. Only women can get pregnant because that's, uh, that's the truth. But when has the government ever mandated that any women, any category of women or any particular woman become pregnant. Well, never. This is a ridiculously stupid talking point that is trying to simply advance the abortion issue. So um, so I, of course, responded to this and I said, this is a false talking point. The government does not cause or mandate anyone to become pregnant. Once a human life is conceived, regardless of the circumstances and potentially crimes involved, the government has an obligation to protect that life as much as yours, Eric. Okay, so I, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that pregnancies can't occur um, in the commission of a crime, uh, like rape. That that, of course, does happen. But in our justice system, no other context do we ever punish the third party for the crime of another. And there is always uh, restitution. There is always um, the the criminal uh, punishment for the perpetrator themselves. But we never actually perpetuate another crime under the auspices of justice that's carried out by the state on an innocent third party for the crime of someone else. But this is exactly what uh, Eric Swalwell is suggesting and why this is such a false talking point. So I want to bring on uh, my good friend, uh, Frank Pavone, who um, is an advocate uh, with Priests for Life and uh, was a former priest. And because of his dedication to not only the pro-life issue, but also uh, because of his support for President Trump and President Trump's pro-life positions, um, was actually uh, t- taken out of the 
ecclesiastical order and the priesthood um, was defrocked and um, and and the Pope actually signed off on this, which was a horrible miscarriage of justice. Um, but um, I'm still going to call you Father Pavone because um, in my view, um, you know, it, it's God who designates our ministries, um, not the Pope or anyone else. So, so Father Pavone, uh, Frank Pavone, welcome this morning. And I just want to get first your reaction to, um, to Eric Swalwell's tweet saying, you know, th- this typifying this as government-mandated pregnancy. This is ridiculous. Well, Jenna, it is ridiculous. First of all, thank you for having me on, and, and, and thank you for your tweet, uh, which I'm retweeting also from my account. Uh, the, the, the point is, first of all, why does he think a, an abortion would help a rape, a rape victim, especially a teenager? Uh, the, all the evidence is that abortion brings a trauma of its own. So we are all concerned about uh, victims of rape, about se- uh, sexual assault of all kinds. Uh, in fact, we're all concerned about anyone who is pregnant and feels that she cannot handle the pregnancy. Uh, that's why the pro-life movement provides uh, better alternatives uh, to these individuals than than abortion. But what these Democrats don't, uh, 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 Democrats and, and, and also any others who support abortion, uh, don't take into account is that there is tremendous trauma and harm brought about by the abortion itself. Plus, of course, the point that you were just uh, articulating regarding the fact that there's a, a third person involved here and why are we killing the baby for the crime of the, of the, of the father. But as far as government-mandated pregnancy, you know, the other side uses this talking point all the time. They'll say a government-forced uh, uh, parenthood also. Well, let's think, let's think of, of the parent uh, uh, of a newborn who is just uh, wearing their nerves thin, and they just feel they can't handle this anymore. Uh, And they decide, as we've seen in sad cases, to, you know, throw the baby into a toilet, drown the baby in a lake, uh, abandon the baby in in a trash dumpster. We've seen this time and time again. Uh, are we going to say that, you know, unless she can do that, this is government enforced motherhood? You know, it's a ridiculous way of looking at it. The baby has rights. Life needs to be protected. And of course, that's the point uh, that you're making and that we all need to make. I'm talking with uh, Frank Pavone, uh, who's an advocate with uh, Priests for Life. And those are really, really excellent points, because that's exactly what the left is trying to do, is to extend and move this moral bright line of when uh, children, and which are basically just younger humans, uh, when human beings have rights, when those rights attach and when uh, the government the government is mandated to protect those rights, and then uh, when parental rights and responsibilities also attach because uh, because that is the point. If we can move that boundary arbitrarily and we can say, oh, okay, well, um, now you know abortion is illegal only after the heartbeat or only after um, we, the the pregnancy has entered the third trimester or only after a certain age of the unborn child then what's to stop the left for doing exactly uh, what you are suggesting is potentially down the road which is to say well you know let's give parents up until their kids reach the age of two and then they can decide whether or not they want to keep, the pregnancy and keep the child and and this other talking right. point to suggest um, that 
Well, it's just, it's whenever a, whenever there's a viability and the child can survive outside the mother's womb because, you know, they need the mother for survival. Well, I would suggest, I mean, a a newborn still needs its parents and needs its mother for survival, can't survive by itself either. So if we're, if we then adhere to those talking points, we're just playing into this notion that we can arbitrarily move the standard of when life uh, not only begins, but when the, the protections begin. Well, you know, Jenna, this argument has actually already been made by pro-choice advocates. There have been uh, articles written over the years that, that, uh, that truly say, oh, you know, a person who doesn't begin until the baby has a significant amount of self-awareness and therefore parents should be able to kill the babies in the, you know, in the first couple of years of, of uh, afterbirth. Uh, Peter Singer. I'm sure many of our, our audience are familiar with that name. He's a, an ethicist uh, uh, a, 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 from Australia originally in Princeton. Um, and he has, has written, along with a number of others, that, look, he said uh, uh, the, 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 there are only two consistent positions, either oppose abortion or endorse infanticide. And, and the reasoning that he makes there is that the, the physical process of birth cannot be regarded as such a monumental shift in the question of who that baby is or how much value that baby has as a person, because it's the same being that is traveling from the womb down the birth canal and out onto the table. It, 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 we all know this from, from just from science and common sense. So it's, it's like if you take the arguments that many people use for abortion, including in the latest terms of, 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 of pregnancy, um, you see that those same arguments can be used as justification for killing the newborn. Oh, I'm too young. Oh, I have too many other children. I don't have the economic resources. I don't have the, the relationship support system. Uh, and, add, and, and we don't minimize any of these problems at all. Like I say, the bulk of the, the pro-life movement uh, that I help to lead is, is, is precisely dedicated to, to providing resources and help for these parents in distress, especially single moms. But the point is, you, you don't justify killing the baby. Uh, uh, looking at these as serious problems doesn't mean you devalue the child. And, and I don't think most Americans want to do that either. But you take the arguments that people will use for abortion and you have to challenge them. Why doesn't this also endorse infanticide? And, and Frank Pavone, that those are exactly the arguments that they are already making. And they're also making the same arguments that you just mentioned, all of these um, these problems that we don't minimize, but they're, they are ultimately excuses when it comes to devaluing human life on the other end of the life spectrum, which is um, all of these physician-assisted suicide bills, completed life bills, um, to to suggest that people who aren't fully cognitively aware or have a, some other kind of disability don't provide as much value to society so we can treat them differently. I mean, all of the uh, same uh. exact worldview that drives yeah. the abortion movement is also yes. driving the end of life movement because ultimately it's the same thing. It's simply just devaluing every human being that's made in the image of God. Well, you know, Jenna, you know, as an attorney, you'll understand this better than, than most. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, when it comes to the other, other end of life, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, a person should not have to endure such terrible suffering in a terminal illness. Let's let them end their life in a quiet, peaceful, dignified way. It's like, OK, hold on. Let's think about this for a moment. If you're saying that that's their right, that should be their right under the Constitution, under some kind of uh, uh, autonomy, as people claim in, in the abortion issue, well, then, then let's think about 
you know, um, equal equal justice under law, okay, the equal application of, of rights. Why should we be the judge of how bad a person's suffering is? If we're going to say that a person has a right to escape suffering under the Constitution, um, and, and, and why then should we not uh, listen to the person who says, hey, uh, I just lost my girlfriend, I just got kicked off the football team, I just flunked out of uh, a college, and uh, 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 this suffering is too much for me to bear, I want to end my life too. I, I mean, how does, does one person get, uh, get to exercise that right to be free from suffering that they consider unbearable, but the other person, we're going to say, oh, we got to call the suicide hotline. Where, where do we come off to be the ones to judge the quality of a person's life or their inner experience of their own suffering? This is very dangerous. Today, I'm, I'm here at my Priest for Life headquarters. We've got 50 national leaders here. We're having a three-day strategy meeting, and these are mostly people who are you know, dealing with the abortion issue, but we've also got some of the leading experts on these end-of-life issues. And this is exactly the point they make, that opening up the, 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 the so-called right to die is going to open up a whole lot more uh, than you originally intended. And th- that is such a great point, because then at what point does does the court or whoever the arbiter is, if that is each individual in their own experience, is the arbiter of the value or suffering of their own experience, then at what point um, do you make those types of judgments? And this is where, though, our culture of, of death and focusing on somehow we supposedly have a right to be free from suffering, which, of course, we know from the Bible is not true. In fact, uh, God promises that because we live in a fallen world, we will endure suffering. We will have trials and tribulations as Christians. And the the reason that we have hope is because we can look forward to an eternity with, with Christ without pain and suffering. But that is not for our human experience here on earth. Um, and, and that's okay. And this is why we have to look forward to the truth and the hope of eternal life in him rather than focusing on whatever our present circumstances may be. So in just the last um, 15 seconds here, how can people get involved and support you in the pro-life movement? And thank you for standing up courageously in all that you do, um, Father Pavone. Well, you're welcome and thank you. And I want to invite people to go to endabortion.us, endabortion.us, a whole range of ministries, including political stuff, church help, and also helping heal those who have had abortions, endabortion.us. We welcome you all. Yes, you do. Well, thank you so much, uh, Frank Pavone. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back with more right here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio Network. Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. Christian parents are on the hook today because they have to identify the threats to the value system uh, that's being taught to their children in public schools. And their job is to protect their kids from these influences. Tune in for Family Talk with Dr. James Dobson. Weekdays at 6.30 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. on American Family Radio. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our program. God's blessings to you all. Here's Pastor Jeff Shreve with From His Heart Ministries. Think how different your life would be 
if you really believed that you, little old you, were a person whom Jesus loves. You let that settle in your heart and it blows you away every time you think about it. Wow. Discover how to have a life that really matters. Join Pastor Jeff Shreve on From His Heart, weeknights at 6 Central, here on American Family Radio. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. When the prodigal son parable is discussed, the focus is usually placed on the young son who squandered his inheritance, yet returned home when he came to himself. But if you look closely at the biblical text, you'll see it actually reveals the inexhaustible love of the father. Jesus' storytelling reveals that this was no usual earthly father. When the young son squandered all, brought shame upon himself and his family, the father sees him from a distance, runs to him, and restores him. That is our Heavenly Father. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, Public Policy Analyst for the American Family Association. Let's be real. Retirement is expensive and inflation is making it even harder with the cost of everything going up from pet food to a dozen eggs. Wouldn't it be great? if the cost of your health care could go down. Well, MediShare 65 Plus is $99 a month for ages 65 to 74. And for many with Medicare Parts A and B, looking at other options, that's 50% or more saved per month. No gimmicks. It's $99 a month, and you can use any Medicare-approved doctor or facility, and you get 24-7 access to telehealth from the convenience of your home. Better yet, MediShare is a Christian nonprofit organization. It's a community that'll pray for you and encourage you. And since we've cut out the middleman, you get to keep the savings. Call now. You can learn more about MediShare 65 Plus. Here's the number. 833-45-BIBLE. That's 833-45-BIBLE. 833-45-BIBLE. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back, and we are following this story that uh, we've been talking about out of Ohio with this um, massive toxin uh, plume cloud that is just um, really insane that this happened with the derailment of a train uh, in East Palestine, Ohio, and uh, the Biden administration apparently thought that the best response to this was to simply uh, burn all of these uh, toxic chemicals, which of course then vaporized the chemicals into this massive, uh, giant cloud, and uh, some of the the photos of this are um, are just really spectacularly bad, and uh, and look like um, you know something from from World War II, frankly. Um, you know, look like I mean, it's just it's incredible, and to see that the Biden administration um, thought that this was the best response, and now they're really not providing any sort of transparency to the American people. Pete Buttigieg um, really isn't anywhere to be seen. He's had a couple of tweets, but, um, you know, he's he's showing yet again his total incompetence uh, running the Department of Transportation. Um, but, but then also, you know, you have the Ohio governor, who is a Republican, Mike DeWine, and 
what exactly is he doing? I mean, his responses in a couple of these press conferences, um, which, you know, he really hasn't spoken out uh, much, and I'm not really hearing um, a lot of people from Ohio. Um, So Bill Johnson, who is the U.S. uh, representative and Congress member uh, for that district uh, in in Ohio, has... um, had said at a at a kind of an open forum uh, yesterday that um, you know he's really not all that concerned you know and I'm paraphrasing but he's kind of minimizing all of this and and his response uh, doesn't seem to suggest that uh, the that the Ohio governor should declare a state of emergency um, you know but they're just kind of sitting back and waiting and saying you know we'll see what the reports say we'll see what's going on meanwhile you have all of these. Uh, toxins that are invading uh, the air and are contaminating the air, um, contaminating the water. And people have questions, you know, is this safe to drink? What are we going to see in years down the road? I mean, that this, you know, may be another, um, you know, Flint water type of situation. I mean, we we don't know. And the questions surrounding this incident, um, I think, are really important of why were um, all of these cars carrying so much of these toxic chemicals and apparently according to reports weren't even labeled uh, that they contained hazardous material so there's a lot of questions about this and yet now uh, the the federal government uh, the Biden administration and also the DeWine administration in Ohio seems to now be blaming the rail company and trying to push Uh, all of the blame for this simply on the rail company, not their own government response. So uh, here was what uh, Governor DeWine said about holding the rail company accountable. This is cut six. Companies should pay for everything. Uh, And, you know, I talked to the CEO yesterday. I said, look, uh, I said, there's concern with some people in East Palestine that you're going to leave before you get the cleanup done. You're going to leave before the the problems are, are dealt with. And, you know, he pledged to me, we're going to stay. We're going to hold them to what they said. We're going to hold them accountable. Uh, They're responsible for this. They're responsible for a very serious train wreck that occurred uh, with some very toxic material. So uh, we're going to hold their feet to the fire. We're going to make sure they pay for everything uh, as we move forward. So uh, apparently Governor DeWine is saying, this is very toxic and we're going to hold them accountable, but uh, you know, but we'll just sit back and wait for reports. So um, I think this is a, a an absurd response, and I would love uh, some answers from both the Biden administration as well as uh, the DeWine administration. And we'll, we will inv- invite the governor on this show, and uh, whether or not he wants to come on and answer questions uh, will be up to him and his office, but we will certainly uh, reach out and see if he would... Uh, Uh, like to answer for uh, his actions and for his responses here. Um, But one member of Congress who is doing such a great job uh, for the the American people and also for uh, his home state of Tennessee is uh, my good friend Thomas Massey. Um, He's just fantastic. If you are not following him on Twitter, uh, you should. And and I know a lot of people, you know, say, well, you know, should we really be involved in Twitter? It's, you know, it's kind of this cesspool. Well, it is. But even if you don't interact with anything, I personally suggest that you have an account that you can just see the tweets of other um, members of Congress, 
um, you know, other influential um, people in the political space, in the news space, just so that you know what is going on. And uh, Thomas Massey is one of those that you absolutely need to follow. Um, he's at Rep Thomas Massey. He has the hashtag that I love, hashtag Sassy with Massey. And uh, he is now sponsoring a bill co-sponsoring with, uh, so it's his bill, and then uh, Representative Andy Biggs, who has been on this program, um, is co-sponsoring. And it's H.R. 899. The bill is one sentence. It says this, the Department of Education shall terminate on December 31st, 2023. I love it. This is amazing. It should happen. I don't really think that the House is in the position for the Republican majority to do this, but they need to push it. And this is completely in following with uh, the Constitution and the overextended authority of the executive branch that uh, what they do is about 95% unconstitutional in all of these executive agencies. So joining me now is my good friend, Corey DeAngelis, who um, is really just a, he is, he has spread like wildfire around the United States advocating for school choice to fund students, not systems. Uh, that has become his motto and tagline. So Corey, thanks so much for joining me today. And I love this bill from Representative Massey. I think it's fantastic. Hey, thanks for having me, uh, Jenna. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love it, too. Uh, I think Thomas Massey has filed this one in previous years as well. Uh, the Department of Education should have never been born in uh, 1979. It hasn't achieved its stated purpose of uh, closing the achievement gap. If anything, our academic outcomes have gotten worse, and we've dumped over a trillion dollars of federal spending since the inception of the uh, Department of Education into the K-12 education system, and things haven't gotten any better, and it, the word education is in the U.S. Constitution. We should get rid of it. Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree, and, you know, this is something where the federal government, um, you know, as you said, has has no involvement constitutionally, no power constitutionally uh, to be involved in education. Um, this is not something uh, that that Article One, Section Eight gives to Congress to legislate on um, certainly does not give to a, a federal bureaucracy in uh, in the federal government to uh, give money then with strings attached to the states. Um, so how how likely? I mean, and I'm putting this on a very unlikely um, <laughs> you know kind of scale. But uh, but do you th- what's what's your take on the likelihood that this would actually pass? I don't think it's going to pass. Um, I think something more more likely to pass would be um, a, a school choice bill. I think uh, T- Senator Tim Scott has one in the Senate. Uh, I think um, there, there's a couple out there. There's a tax credit scholarship as well. That might be more likely to pass the, the House. Uh, Republicans control the House, and they put out a commitment to America agenda, and, I'm, and one of the items was school choice. So if they want to follow through with their commitment. Now they've taken over control of the House. Um, maybe they'll go forward with that, but they don't even have that on their uh, commitment to America agenda. Uh, so, look, I think we'd, we would need a bigger majority of Republicans in, in, in the House. And then in the Senate, obviously, it has to go through both chambers. Um, the Democrats still control the Senate. So even if it did pass the House, there's no way in getting through the Senate. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. And um, it's unfortunate, but I love to see that Representative Massey is at least putting this forward to, um, I think, open the conversation and make the Democrats 
uh, defend why they think that the Department of Education is a constitutional agency and why it should exist. And um, hopefully, if this is brought to the floor, at least get people on record in terms of um, the the debate around it and then ultimately the vote. So I think it's at least good that this is now Mm -hmm. uh, being discussed where it hasn't before. But um, but, you know, since the federal government is still doing its thing and, you know, doing its unconstitutional thing, um, let's focus on the states because, you know, you've been going around um, just really prolifically around the states, uh, getting a lot of these um, these school choice bills passed. So where do you want to start? I mean, just kind of give us an update of what's going on that's positive around the country. Yeah, look, a universal school choice revolution has ignited. And the best part is that it's the teachers union's own fault for pushing to keep the schools closed for so long and waking up families to families got to see what was going on in the classroom during the so-called remote learning or what I would call remotely learning because there wasn't a lot of learning going on with the school closures. But Bodie Bauckham said it best. We cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and and be surprised when they come home as Romans. The good news is parents aren't surprised anymore. They've, they've woken up. They're never going back to sleep, and they're pushing back at school board meetings, but they're pushing back at the ballot box, too. We, we've had a lot of success in, in the midterms, actually. My organization, uh, in 2022, 76% of the candidates supported by my organization, the American Federation for Children, won their races in 2022. Uh, and we, we also played in a lot of um, – uh, uh, very difficult races uh, against incumbents, and we targeted 69 incumbents, which is the hardest thing to do in politics, and we took out 40 of them. Uh, and then you don't have to take my word for it, but uh, also the the liberal tears in the New Yorker magazine uh, t- tells the whole story. It, when the the liberal author lamented, education freedom candidates fared depressingly well in the midterms. Well, that might be bad for the, the socialists who want to control other people's kids, but it's great news for parents. And we've seen uh, 2023 is shaping up to be another record-breaking year for school choice. We've already had two states go all in, uh, universal, allowing every single family to take their children's education dollars to the education provider of their choosing, and that is Iowa and Utah. This comes after uh, 2022, where Arizona went all in as well, with one-seat Republican majorities uh, empowering every family with school choice in the state of Arizona. They had 10,000 students using their program in in 2022 uh, before they uh, went all in. And now there's about 50,000 families signed up for the program in just a few months. Uh, So it's huge. Families want this. 2021, there was tons of states that, that passed. Uh, expansion to school choice. And 2023 looks like it's going to be the the biggest year yet. Uh, with what we're seeing, red states in particular are, are going big. Whereas before in the school choice movement, we've seen incremental reforms, small, you know, tweaks allowing certain categories of students to participate. Now red states in particular are engaging in friendly competition to empower uh, families with educational freedom. So I have my eyes on Texas. I live in Texas now. Uh, Governor Abbott is leading on the issue like I've never seen before. Uh, we see Oklahoma, Florida, who has been really w- done really well in school choice for decades, is finally has a couple bills in each chamber, uh, um, backed by leadership in each chamber, and obviously 
supported by uh, Governor DeSantis, who, who supports parental rights and education, they're finally looking like they're going to go all in as well. So just it's spreading like wildfire. It's absolutely awesome. And I'd like to thank Randy Weingarten for overplaying her hand and awakening a sleeping giant. Uh, parents who just want more of a say in their kids' education. Yeah, and, and, and I'm speaking with uh, Corey DeAngelis, um, who's with the American Federation for Children and uh, a prolific advocate in school choice. And so, um, you know, you mentioned um, Randy Weingarten and sort of, you know, the left that has overplayed their hand. And I think, you know, we saw that in Virginia in the 20, um, what was it, the, uh, you know, the, the, the midterms in, in, 21. Uh, yeah, in 2021 and, uh, and seeing all of the um, – really, you know, parents who were awakened to what exactly was going on in their children's education. Um, where does homeschooling fit into sort of this school choice piece? Yeah, totally. There's a, a, a reform that's being pushed in most states that, have, that I see school choice policies uh, um, either implemented or, or suggested this term, something called an education savings account. And this is what passed in Iowa, this is what passed in Utah, this is what is being considered in Texas and all these other red states right now. This is what Arizona just passed. Uh, basically, it is allows you to take the funds that would follow you to the government-run school, which on, on average is about $16,000 per student per year, according to the latest 2020 census data uh, nationwide. Uh, it allows you to take the state portion, which is about half that amount. In Arizona, it's about $7,000 per student, uh, for example. And if you want, you can take that money back to the government-run school. If you like your public school, you can keep your public school. But for real, and like with your doctor, you can really keep it. Uh, but if not, you can take that $7,000 to a education savings account directed by the parent, and you can use that to pay for private school tuition and fees uh, much like previous uh, school choice initiatives, but you could also take that funding to any other approved education expenditure that could be for home-based education expenses like curriculum or private tutoring or special needs educational therapies or and, textbooks. And the, uh, or and the key word, and, and we're out of time, Corey, thanks so much for joining me. Um, you know, the key word there is approved expenses, and that's where, you know, there's some pushback on ESAs. I think there, that that's a great uh, solution, at least for now, and a ton more work to be done. Thank you so much for your work in this space. We are out of time, but I will see you tomorrow morning right here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.